Hey everyone, this is Carolyn from Hysterical. This past week, we hosted an incredible guest. Dr. Luana Marquez is an expert on anxiety, stress, and depression. I found it particularly helpful because Dr. Luana gave very specific ways that you can counterbalance or pay attention to anxieties that's coming up for you. Obviously, f- folks all across the spectrum experience anxiety, but it's particularly relevant for women going through perimenopause and menopause. So it was a really interesting conversation. I'm going to drop you in right now. And I'm incredibly delighted to be joined by Dr. Luana Marquez today. Dr. Marquez is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, past president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and best-selling author. Her latest critically acclaimed book, Bold Move, a three-step plan to transform anxiety into power is a testament to her ability to translate complex scientific insights into actionable strategies. Welcome, Dr. Marquez. Luana, thanks for being here. So delighted to be here, Amanda. It's, it's lovely to be here with everybody. Yeah, it's great. So what we'll do is chat for a little bit and then we'll open it up to questions. I know you love questions and I think this is such a juicy topic and ripe for personal stories and and various questions. Uh, But, you know, we always want to start with um, how did you come to be here and and be an expert in in anxiety? And I know your personal story is quite um, powerful. Would you mind sharing how you started down this road? Sure. Um, So, you know, I, I grew up in Brazil. Um, and I'd say I grew up as a very anxious child. Um, I don't think I had those words as a child. As a child, I really probably talked mostly about, you know, feeling stressed and, and avoiding things. Um, it was my mom, my sister, and I, my father left when we were about 12, 13. And it was tough. There was a lot of domestic violence in the home early on. There was a lot of trauma. But eventually, Actually, I um, moved in with my grandmother and she started to teach me some of the skills that I actually share in the book. I didn't know they were scientifically based skills, but, you know, one of the examples were moments when, you know, I went from a little town to a big town and I really started to avoid people. I started to be anxious in social situations, didn't want to make friends. And she caught this and she said, you know what, we need to go and talk to people. And she sort of forced me to approach instead of avoiding. And by the time I got to graduate school in the U.S. 20 years later, I realized that she was teaching me what's now known as exposure therapy. And learning those things from both my mom and my grandmother were the pathway towards my own journey of transforming anxiety into power and being able to use skills to get myself unstuck. And so today I wouldn't say I'm an anxious person. I certainly have anxiety, but I use it as a way to change my life every day, a little step at a time. You know, it's so interesting. And thank you for sharing your personal story. I mean, it's, um, I mean, it's brave. And to think about growing up in a household that was fraught with domestic violence, you can start to see maybe where those seeds were planted. And as a psychiatrist, I wonder if, if, what school of thought you're in? Do you believe that some of these um, behaviors or these predilections toward anxiety, depression, et cetera, um, start in childhood? So, you know, if we stay 
As, as a trauma expert, I'd say that early childhood adverse events certainly contribute significantly to anxiety, right? What we know scientifically is that the way that your brain even develops when you face things like domestic violence or substance use in the home or divorce or poverty, those things change the way your brain develops and, and for most people would put them in a stage of hyperarousal or where they very little can trigger um, a startle response or a anxiety response. And so for sure, for me, the, the biology um, was there. Um, and I, but, you know, we can't in psychology really talk about cause and effect that easy. It's a contributor for sure. Um, but, you know, I'd say my mom is an anxious person herself. So some of this is passed on. Sure. My, my therapist, you know, she, the other day she was laughing because we were talking about my childhood and she was like, I'm laughing because I went to, um, I did, you know, she did her dissertation on how it all doesn't come back to childhood, but now every time it does, she sort of laughs because, um, there's that, you know, reinforcement. So I, you know, I think it's a, um, it's a meaty subject to dive into, but one we won't spend too much time on today. Um, you, you mentioned being stuck and I think that's really powerful. What's your definition of stuck? Cause I think we've probably all felt stuck at various times in our life. Yeah. So I, I feel, um, being stuck is the sensation, this, this feeling like that you're not living your best life, that something is not working and it will come in three sort of buckets, right? We sometimes feel stuck by what we're saying to ourselves. So we're stuck on negative perceptions of the self feeling like you're not enough off, you're worthless, you're unlovable. Sometimes we're stuck because we are not approaching the things that matters the most. So we're not living a values-driven life. And sometimes we're stuck just on emotions. Every time we feel anxious, we're going to run away from those emotions. But it's the sensation of what I have today is not what I want to have. And I don't know how to get out of here. So if you're stuck in a job, for example, you go in every day and you're just not happy but you continue to do it because it's what you know to do. Does that help, Amanda? Yeah, yeah. I um, yeah. I think I'm thinking the three categories would be helpful because this idea of um, feeling not enough, I think, is a human condition, and and so there can be, at least in my experience, stuckness on a daily level, and then there can be stuckness on a, a months or years level, you know, and um. And I think it's important to um, understand those two things because um, it's such a continuum. For sure. So, yeah. Yeah, well, what I was going to well, say is, is, is for sure it is. I, the thing is, regardless of the definition we put on it, I've never met somebody that's stuck that doesn't know that something's not working for them. They may not mm -hmm. be say why they stuck, but they certainly feel like life is not moving in the way they would have wanted. How do you help them through that? So say, you know, if we were to workshop on the call today, if if life isn't moving the way I want it to, how would you help me? So I think the first thing is really identifying avoidance. Most of us are stuck because we are engaging in what I call psychological avoidance. Psychological avoidance is literally anything that we do that helps momentarily, but long-term, it only reinforces fear and anxiety. So imagine that you are in a job that you dislike and you just continue to go to that job, right? 
in that way, you're sort of avoiding your reality, so to speak, because you really want something different and you're not doing it. So, and in the book, I talk about the three R's of avoidance. So before we can get to a solution, I think the first piece is where am I getting stuck or how am I getting stuck? For some of us, we get stuck because when we feel anxious, we avoid by reacting. Now, that's how I avoid, by the way. It's instead of moving away from discomfort, I just go towards it so that I can try to eliminate that discomfort as fast as possible. So if you get an email from your boss that upsets you tremendously, you know, for me, what I would do for many years, I don't anymore, or at least I try not to, I probably still do. (laughs) As I write an email fast, really fast without thinking, like telling as I see it, direct, blunt. And then usually I press send or used to, and then I'm stuck because I wasn't thoughtful. I wasn't, you know, um, I didn't use my thinking brain. I was using my emotional brain. And that form of reacting, so raising your voice, getting angry, is a way to avoid our own discomfort. And so some of us get stuck there and I'll cover briefly the other two hours before we can talk about how to solve it. But one is is react. The other one is retreat. This is my husband's favorite. Um, When conflict hits and he gets uncomfortable, he walks away, right? So he won't have a difficult conversation. He might not read that email. That's probably what he would do. He just probably put it aside and not look at it. And some of us um, will retreat by just, you know, like going on social media and just scrolling or trying to sort of go away for whatever it's making you anxious. And finally, some of us are stuck because we remain in place frozen. Mm-hmm. Like in the case of the email, if you're stuck avoiding by remaining, you're like deer in the headlight, not sure what to do. Does that help us sort of the three R's of yeah, avoiding? React, react. Uh, retreat. And then the third one is remain. Okay. So, so stay frozen. Okay. So the, I I think there's some statistic about how many millions of people in the world have anxiety and I can't, but help think that we all have anxiety in moments. So how do, so, you know, you're giving a perfect example when um, we feel uncomfortable, you know, and then we start to have those anxious, that anxious swirl in our tummy. And then we, you know, um, sort of respond with one of those three R's to me that that feels like anxiety, but how do I know if, um, it's just like normal human behavior versus something that, um, is bigger or creating more stuckness. So think about, you know, a spectrum and, and you're right. So this is, well, the CDC suggests that 20 to 40% of Americans today have clinical levels of depression and anxiety. So we're talking about, you know, everybody knows somebody that has some level of anxiety. The question then becomes, is this anxiety paralyzing me or is this just, you know, I'm a little anxious. So if your kid is sick, you're going to be a little anxious, right? If you're um, about to go in a meeting, that's really important about the change of the trajectory of your career. You're going to be a little anxious. So the, the reason I say anxiety itself is not the problem is because to your point, Amanda, we're biologically wired to have some discomfort when our brain senses some level of danger, even if it's a false alarm, right? The problem is when that anxiety starts to dictate our actions, dictate what we do. That's when I think it's a level of anxiety that we need to address because at that point, you know, imagine that you're doing really well in your job and you have an evaluation 
and, and you want to ask for a raise, but you get so anxious that you don't ask for a raise or you negotiate a raise. Those are, when anxiety rubs you from your most meaningful life, that's the anxiety that is the problem. And, and the last thing I'll say is keeping in mind that we can't get rid of anxiety. So the only thing we can get rid of is avoidance. Okay. So <laughs> I, I love the job example because I think it's real and it's, it's something that we can all relate to. You get an email and you, you know, react or you don't read it. I think we've all been there, but what about in the day-to-day, you know, I'm thinking about um, in a, you know, if you're in a relationship, if you're living with somebody and you're, I'll speak from I, um, if, if my partner is having feelings, you know, sometimes I get uncomfortable with their feelings. So then I get anxious around how they're feeling. And then I'm, I'm sort of in a swirl because they might be in a swirl. So it's this like tango of feelings. Like how did, how, how do I understand if that's anxiety? Cause anytime I feel a, twir- a swirl in my tummy, I think it's anxious anxiety. You know, I'm afraid of something happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I want to be in that feeling, but I also don't want to be in it. So is there a tool for how I can manage it in relationship to my relationships? You know, you, you have a husband and a kid. I mean, certainly this has probably come up before. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so the first thing I'd say is this, we are only responsible for our own emotions. And I know this is hard as a human being, but this only, even my kid, I'm not responsible for his emotions, right? I can't, I can teach him how to feel his emotions, but the first one is being able to stop yourself. So if your husband's, you know, mood or anxiety is contaminating your own state, he means that it's likely you're saying something to yourself about what he's experiencing that's feeding your own anxiety. Right. Something Mm -hmm. I'm going to put words in your mouth, but something like, you know, he's going to be upset forever. Now we're not going to have a good time or whatever it is. Right. And so there's this piece of like identifying our own thoughts. And the skill here is called shift. We want to shift our perspective from anxious thoughts that contaminate our lives and lead to anxiety to more balanced perspectives. So really looking at the data and trying to understand that. I um I had the same situation early in my relationship with my husband. Every time we're dating, he would like get anxious. I'd be like, oh my God, what I do wrong? What I would say to myself is what I do wrong. He's mad at me. How do I fix this? How do I get? This? And eventually I had to, number one, change my perspective. Right? I'm not responsible for his emotions. And two, approach, have a conversation with him. I said, you look really upset right now. Is this related to us? Because if it's not, then I need to let him be upset and just walk away for a little bit because he needs to manage that. Does that help a little bit of skills? Yeah. Well, and, and that sort of brings us back to the second R, which is retreat. Um, I think sometimes when you're feeling anxious or you're in a in sort of a dynamic with somebody, maybe it's your boss, you know, instead of re- reacting to that email, I think there is a tool to consciously retreat or or, you know, step away until your emotions come down. So is there a positive R in there too? So I'm going to separate retreat as a form of psychological avoidance versus what you're just suggesting, which is super smart, which is to pause, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm doing this is because I, I, the reason I call the three R's is because I wanted them to be very distinct in people's brains from fight, flight, or freeze. But that's the response, right? Well, if you fight, you react. If you flight, you, re- you, um, you retreat. And if you freeze, you remain. Right, that's the parallel here. That that same kind of biology is happening, but one is to a lion, the other one is to an email. So it's a perceived threat. Now, when you get that perceived threat, the first thing we can do to change our anxiety and the hidden superpower that each one of us today have 
this ability of pausing, right? And, and I'd suggest above and beyond just pausing, Amanda, pausing and examining your thoughts, your emotions, and your behavior. So right now, what am I saying to myself about this email? How do I feel? And what do I want to do? And for me, like, I just, this, I, I was joking earlier, but I was about to take a flight. I was on a plane about to take off. And I got this email that was super loaded. And I took a screenshot sent to my husband. And as you know, I press send, and then I started to compose it, like literally. And my husband sends me a text back, do not reply. That's avoidance. Turn your phone off. And I was like, dang, you're right. Okay. Yeah. I turned off my phone and I didn't respond because I would be just reacting instead of doing what you're suggesting, which is this pause, look at what I'm saying. And, and in that one, I took 48 hours to respond because it took me a while to cool off. And I didn't want to respond from an anxious place. I wanted to respond from a thinking place. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, I love that, you know, that um, call to action of what to do in the pause. Cause I think the reframe is something um, that's so hard to do because it's really compelling to be in the story that we're creating for ourselves too. And there's some energy in it, even if it's, if it's not productive energy, it still feels good to be angry or mad or, or, you know, um, righteous, you know, all of the things that, um, are compelling, but ultimately not productive. Yeah. I mean, so the story that we create through our lives, right. The narrative that we have is that the most, the least effort, right. Our brain knows that story. And even if it's not a helpful story, it's a story that you've lived it for so long that becomes your reality, right? Now, when we're saying let's pause and reframe, it takes a lot of energy to learn that. It's not sort of something they do overnight. But to me, facing reality doesn't mean we like reality. And sometimes we have to understand that what we're saying to ourselves is no longer current reality. I think, I mean, what you just said is total gold. I want to go back to it. So the story where we tell ourselves is the easiest story because it's the one we've been telling ourselves the longest. And yeah, I mean, and the brain is wired that way. So there's no dissonance. You know, if I see myself as not good and I continue to enforce that, that's what my brain believes. Wow. And so, and so the real, the real act of um, growth is to not do the thing that's easy. It's the thing, it's to reframe and to effort in this direction of what's a better composure, what, you know, what's a, and even not a story to tell myself, like, what's the truth? And the truth is really just the moment, right? That's exactly right. So, because see, whenever we continue the same narrative, the brain is comfortable, right? Because it doesn't lead to dissonance. The, the example I often use to uh, illustrate this is imagine that you and I are walking in the middle of a rural area somewhere and you're telling me about a breakup and you're sobbing and I'm paying attention to you. And there's all sorts of things around, but I'm not paying attention, right? I'm paying attention to a man in my conversation. But imagine that we walked by a cow and that cow started to meow like a cat. I couldn't hear you anymore. I'd be like, what is going on? What universe is this? And, and that's what we actually have to do to our brains to halt it, to go, oh, this is not the reality that I imagined it was. Now let me understand there's no reality, right? And it takes a lot of energy, but that's how we construct a moment that's a lot more balanced instead of a prediction that we made based on the past. 
Yeah, I like that idea of balance too, because you're not trying to over-index and tell yourself this fake story, right? Or be in all possibility. It's just like, really, what's the truth of this moment? And how am I reinforcing probably my own suffering if we were to just bottom line it? 100%. It's it's what Pema Schroeder talks about moving pain into suffering, right? That yeah. like you're, you know, we're all going to have some pain, but we don't have to make into suffering. And you're right that like we need to be able to then transform that moment in a way that's more balanced. And, you know, CBT, cognitive behavior therapy often gets criticized because we're like, well, we're trying to make somebody have happy thoughts. That is not. The idea is a balanced perspective based on reality so that we can have a more, you know, flexible brain. Yeah. So, you know, we, um, hysterical, we're uh, creating whisper culture for menopause. And, um, while I know you don't speak to menopause specifically, there is, um, a lot of research and data that suggests that women are more anxious as they go through the perimenopause transition. And then I also think about all the other symptoms like lack of sleep and hot flashes and, um, you know, body aches and things like that. And, and so there's something physiological that is also getting in our way that might be um, foundational to us not being able to sort of calm those anxious thoughts or transform pain, or, you know, we, we want to, we want to be in suffering more than this awareness of pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you and I chatted before, we talked about the physiological aspect and how important that is too. you know, eating, sleeping, exercising, what's, what's that relationship to anxiety? So the first thing I say to anybody I work with is I ask them about their eating, their sleeping and exercise, because all three of them can either lead to or increase anxiety, right? So for example, I worked with somebody that had a lot of anxiety. And when I first started working with him, I said, okay, when is the last time you ate? He's like, well, I ate, you know, seven hours ago. And I said, okay, now you have to actually bring food to our sessions because the reality is if you're really hungry, you might actually be feeling anxiety, but it's really hunger, right? Sleep, the same thing. If we, all of us, yeah, I'm sure have had a bad night of sleep. And if you're prone to anxiety, then what happens is you have more racing thoughts. You might have, you know, a heart pounding and then you like start to wonder what that means. Um, and exercise is probably the most researched thing these days in terms of the relationship to emotional health. And we know that moving your body would lead to better emotional health. And it makes a lot of sense because we are overcoming that inertia and those negative thoughts. And, and I think about this as just like little movement, right? Not, not just necessarily have to hit the gym, but like there are days if I can't go to the gym, I go for a walk or I do jumping jacks. So I'm going to blast Shakira and dance with my kid. It doesn't matter what it is, but we're going to move our body. We want to eat, you know, ideally healthily, but at least often enough. And we want to get good sleep. Yeah. And say, and the alcohol thing, I think is really, um, interesting too, because oftentimes when we're in our pain and suffering, sometimes again, I'll speak from, I, you know, it's easy. It's nice to have a glass of wine and relax in that moment. And then the next day I kind of feel low and blue. And I think there's a relationship to alcohol and anxiety that I'm just starting to understand, you know, in my mid forties. Yeah. So for sure. I mean, I always think about the function of what I'm doing. Why am I reaching for this, you know, glass of wine or whatever it is? I mean, I personally love champagne, but if I'm having a really bad day, that is not what I'm going to do because I know likely I'd want to have a little too much 
before, the next day you feel worse, right? And alcohol, there's research to show that the emotional hangover of alcohol can be as long as 72 hours after. So sometimes we don't even link it. We had two or three drinks here. And then three days later, your anxiety is too high and you might not link back there. And so I think it's really important to think about about, you know, and if you are having a bad day, like, can I go for a walk first before reaching for that wine? Because the wine is just a form to retreat as avoidance for your own discomfort. Yeah. The, the 72 hour emotional hangover is wild because yeah, again, if it's Wednesday and you hadn't had something to drink since Saturday or Sunday, you wouldn't correlate those two things. And then you start to create these stories, right? The racing thoughts and making meaning out of your anxiety that might not be correlated. It might be physiological. I mean, it's all physiological, right? But it might correlate to something that day that isn't meaningful, as meaningful as it could be. Yeah. I think we just end up feeding it, right? Because I think that's the challenge with anxiety is that whenever we have, you know, to a point, your stomach hurts a little bit, it rolls, or that you get that little heart pounding, then because our brains is designed to do two things, right? Predict and protect. Once senses something, is going to predict something is happening. Sometimes it's nothing, right? And, but when you're anxious already, then you can't say nothing. So you create a whole narrative that that, that narrative, the brain goes, oh, something is definitely wrong now. And then it creates more anxiety and you're just ping ponging from anxiety to anxiety instead of just holding it, calling it, oh, I had a few too many drinks or that's the alcohol I had Saturday night. Yeah. Or these, the, these person's feelings are not my feelings or, you know, whatever my boss is, is, um, on my back about is not my, you know, is not who I am. Right. All exactly. of those things. Exactly. Um, so you, you've talked about exposure therapy a lot. I think we should touch on that mm-hmm. too, because I think that's the most provocative and interesting thing. If anybody hasn't heard um, Luana's TED talk, I encourage you to do that. But at one point you asked one of your clients to get in the trunk of a car mm-hmm. um, and, you know, talk about dramatic. Um, so yeah, how did you come? I know, you know, exposure therapy was something that you came to understand in your childhood. And then obviously again, through medical school and your practice. Um, but what sort of, uh, what role does it have for us as lay people that are just dealing with anxiety on a day-to-day basis and maybe not, um, coming to see somebody for it? So the whole premise of exposure therapy is this idea that the brain's predicting something bad is going to happen. So, you know, for people that have claustrophobia, that they're going to run out of air in an elevator, which is actually physically impossible to do, but that's the prediction, right? Or a small place like a trunk of a car. And so the brain's predicting this bad outcome. And what you do, you avoid that outcome. So you just don't take elevators. You don't go in small enclosed places. You don't get close to dogs. You And so the premise is very simple and, and it works. And the reason it works is you're training your brain that your prediction is actually wrong, right? For that person that I asked to go in the trunk of the car, she was convinced that in a small place like that, she was going to have a panic attack and she's going to die immediately. And she didn't die, right? And so the reason I like it and the way I approach it today, not in terms of full-blown you know, diagnosis, but for every regular person, is what we call opposite action. Think about it this way. Whenever you're anxious, anxiety is going to dictate a form of avoidance one way or another. I, you know, some of us will send the email. Some of us won't read the email. Um, some of us will not go on a date. Some of us won't ask for something we want. And so 
opposite action is the idea of going against that avoidance, but taking a small step. So if this was exposure therapy, you'd say, okay, let's create a list of things you're afraid of and let's take one and then the other and then the other. But in daily life, if you are really upset with your partner, maybe you can't sit down and have a conversation yet, right? But the avoidance is going to say, just ignore this completely. The opposite action may be, listen, honey, I'm really upset with you. And I think we need to set up some time to talk about this. Right? That's one step towards that discomfort. It creates a plan and allows you to approach instead of avoiding a way that's controlled so that your brain understands that, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable to talk to your partner about whatever the conflict is, but it's not going to kill you like your brain's predicting you would. Does that help Amanda to make it bite-sized? Yeah. Yeah. A, a little bit. I want to, I want to use another example. So uh, maybe I'm in a story that my boss is, you know, not, not for me or doesn't see my value. And, um, you know, what if, what if in the context of that relationship with my boss, I always have this low le level anxiety because I don't really know where I stand or I'm creating this story that I don't know where I stand. How do I, um, how do I take an opposite action for that? Cause there's probably a reframing, like, doesn't matter. I don't know. It doesn't matter where I stand. It's probably not the right. But I think we've, you know, maybe all been there, um, with bosses over the years that feel, um, precarious. The relationship feels precarious. So how would you approach that? So I would do two things. Um, the first one is really, I would, work on your thinking like you're talking about. So I would really work on shifting my perspective about what is my own sense of worth in this job? What do I contribute to this job? What are the things that I've achieved in this job? So one is just, can we change your own narrative? To your point, you're using the word reframe, I, same thing, I sort of shifting, but really understanding the reality of you in the job. The second thing is this, the brain hates uncertainty. That's, that's true. Just We don't like when things don't make sense or when it's uncertain. And so in that case, I would seek certainty. I would actually, the opposite action is in a meeting with your boss and the conversation of, and, and I'd come prepare. I'd say, you know, this is what I've contributed, but lately I've got the sense that you think my worth here or that I'm not contributing enough. Maybe it's a softer way to say that. Can we have a conversation about this? Right. Because the longer you avoid, the worse the narrative becomes in the brain. Yeah. And if you approach, you're going to have one or two answers. Wait a minute. That was in your brain. That makes sense. And then you have to have a conversation about it. And the other one was like, yep, yeah, you're right. You know, I think you're not really good for the team. I personally, though, prefer to face my reality, even if it's uncomfortable, than just creating those narratives in my brain. Yeah, I do too. Um, but what I'm also hearing is if I'm somebody who likes to confront, that might be me sort of being in reaction to, and how can I take an opposite action and confront in a way that isn't combative um, or too much, you know, in, in the relationship, you know, how can it, it be actually conscious and present? Uh, for sure. I mean, if, if the function of having that meeting and the conversation is to just feel better fast, then you're just avoiding by reacting. Right. And so some of us, I mean, that's why I, through my adult life, have really been thoughtful because if I get anxious, then I want to do, 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 I want to do something to feel better. And I realized that that was my avoidance, that I need to like pause and plan it from a place of thinking brain, not emotional brain.
So how much, so how, you know, if you're feeling anxious now in your day-to-day, how much is, uh, of it is an exercise of just being anxious, you know, feeling the feeling and and trying to quiet the mind, you know, because there's something physiological about that, that um, is a response that, that might go away if we're just um, in the feeling of it. Yes and no. I think I th- some, I think the whole idea behind, you know, mind infinite and paying attention in the moment and, and the idea of emotional regulation is this idea that you should feel your feelings, right? But anxiety is not just a physical feeling. There's a, so much thinking that comes with anxiety. And so I agree with you that if we're talking about just my heart pounding and that's all I have, like, or my stomach is, is not a little bit, naming that and staying with it will help tremendously. But if that has spilled over into thinking and that thinking is making you more anxious, sitting with that anxiety won't do anything because then you're really just ruminating, right? And you're just thinking. And so I would, what I, the way I practice is I practice, you know, my mindfulness and my meditation as a way to always have a more calm brain. But in the moments that I'm really, really anxious, then I tend to either shift my perspective or find an opposite action. That's um, powerful that you have a, a practice. So is there like, you know, not a what's in your purse, but what's in your practice, your toolkit of practice as a psychiatrist that works in anxiety? Do you meditate every day or do you not so, have coffee? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I drink lots of coffee. Um, I, I think if I stopped drinking coffee, I'd be avoiding something. I don't know, but I, <laughs> I, Pleasure, I, I, I love my coffee. <laughs> I love my coffee. Um, so I, you know, I, a couple things I do from, for sure. The first one is I tend to do some kind of movement. And if I take a walk, I do a mindful walk. Um, and so it's not a formal sitting meditation, but I'll try to sort of like really mindfully walk and feel my feet and label things around. Um, I do a lot of opposite action. Like whenever I'm anxious, I'm like, okay, what is the one thing I can do that goes towards this anxiety? And then the last one is really, and we haven't talked about the skill yet, but it's what I call a line in the book, which is a values-driven life. So I'm very clear today on my top three values, and I align my actions with my values on a weekly basis. And so on Sunday night, I'll look at my calendar and I'll look at my meetings and I'll say, okay, who are my three values? Today is health impact and family. And I want to make sure that on average, those things that I'm doing are aligned with those things. And if I have, for example, three meetings back to back that are of service to others, but I, it's very clear that in that day I'm being a service to others, but there is no alignment with family, for example, or with impact, then I'll, I'll, I'll change things. I reschedule things. I move them around, not to balance things out. And I want to make sure people hear this, right? It's not like I'm trying to do 50% this it's not it's like on average my week am i aligned with my values because what i personally know and research backs this out it's when i do i'm less stressed i'm less anxious i have better well-being and overall i just finish the day on a net positive even for days that i'm doing things that are stressful oh my gosh that's cool how how did you come to your values and do they do your top three values change like is that are those the theme for the year or is is that the theme for your life so i think all of us have core values that tend to be steady for our life like integrity or respect right things that are very important I personally think that values change through the seasons of your life and as things change. So in transitions, um, changing jobs, having a kid, getting divorced. And so I 
personally, every three months, reassess mine as almost like the seasons of the year. You know, I, I wouldn't wear a bathing suit outside in the winter in Boston. And so I, I want to make sure that if I'm in the winter of my life, what are the values that should be guiding you versus if I'm in the summer of my life? And um, and they do change. I mean, early on in my career, the value that got me to be an associate professor at Harvard Medical School was ambition. Ambition is what got me out of poverty and was the thing like and I just kept going I was going to write more papers eventually I hit a wall and I was like doing more of this no longer helps me and so once I hit that wall and I reassess my values I got to impact so today I'm here with you Amanda um, because I want to bring this skills to as many people in the world as possible so that we don't have to be stuck right and now six months from now is impact going to be the top one I'm not sure but Personally, three is what I can handle. More than that, it becomes too much to align actions with it. Ah, I love it. I'm going to cry. It's so simple and so poignant. I mean, I think another way to actually move out of the anxiety is to, to think about values too, I think, and move toward your values. I think that's such a beautiful uh, action to take. I, um, I, I love values work. Um, and I look at my calendar at the beginning of the week and I don't align it to my values, but I do align it to, um, how I want to feel. And I think that, you know, just shifting the rudder ever so much and understanding, um, and three is a great number. You know, I think we could all do that and maybe we'll do another show where we take everybody through their values. I see, um, some friends who are on here too, that are experts in that work. Maybe we'll bring that to this community if you guys are up for it. Um, but I know I know we have a lot of questions out there. I'm sure we have a lot of questions out there. So I'll just um, share now that if you have any questions, you can um, come off a of video and raise your hand or you can pop them into the chat. Um, I'm seeing some yes pleases on the values work. Uh, and so glad that you, that one of your values now, um, as you're, I don't, I wouldn't say you're in the winter of your life. You're probably in the spring of your life, um, <laughs> but the um, impact work and bringing this to more people, because that's certainly how we feel about um this work with hysterical too you know like we we were if we have more information it's incumbent upon us to share so that we can all feel better together 100 out there okay i mean i can keep rocking on this um, <laughs> i have one amanda oh yeah carolyn please hi dr luana um i am a mother of a 10 year old and a 10 year old daughter and I sometimes wonder, to your point around exposure therapy, like the the um, examples you use sound to me of someone who has like a real deep rooted anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I sometimes wonder about the way that I'm parenting Eloise is, am I pushing too much? Like uh, my instinct is to expose her to a lot of things potentially before she's ready. Mm -hmm. And I... In, I think worst case scenarios, I'm like minimizing her fear and pushing her too far too soon. So I'm creating anxiety around the thing. Yeah. Best case scenario is like, she's getting over a kind of a fear because she's 10 and it's not real and I don't want to make it real. So she does it and she realizes it's not scary. I just don't know what that line is. And I think sometimes I've done like too much and not enough. And so yeah, I know that it's individual and specific to the individual, but, and, and certainly for me too, like sometimes I'm, I'm going too far with a career choice and it's actually too far outside of my comfort zone. And I'm just wondering like, what's the sweet spot? And is there anything we can be looking out for in like 
how I'm responding physically or how she's responding physically that would help Mm -hmm. her and me. For sure. And and Carolyn, may I ask what makes you say that you have gone too far? Has she given you that feedback? Well, yes, but also, um, you know, when she was like seven or something, I, you know, we went, she went to sleepaway camp and it was far away. She was in Colorado. She was the youngest person. It was two weeks. She was really anxious about it. And I, and I kind of nudged her and she had a hard time. And then the next year I nudged her again and she went, and then this year she was like, I'm not doing that. I didn't like it. It made me feel anxious. And uh, so, yeah, I feel like ah, I did that too soon. And now she has this story about summer camp that like, oh, she's never going to like it now because I pushed her too much too soon. Yeah. And so I asked that because sometimes, you know, without the feedback, it's hard. But to answer your question, there's two ways I think about that. The first one is this. Think about living and pushing your daughter in a comfortably uncomfortable way. So completely uncomfortable she's on fight flight or freeze and she's paralyzed and whatever she does even if she goes to camp she's going to be in this frozen state that's just too much completely comfortable she's home with you cuddled up enjoying some popcorn in the couch having a great time nothing happens when we're completely comfortable and nothing happens when we're completely uncomfortable so finding this comfortably uncomfortable way to a approach it. And, and, and I think I would take my, as a mom and as a professional, I take my own temperament. So I tend to over approach and I know that. So when I'm parenting, I tend to go, if I was going to do this, what would be my way? And then, you know, I only have a five-year-old, but like, for example, he's afraid of dogs right now. I won't cross the street with him. I won't make him touch a big dog but I won't let him run out of the room either. So we are, um, we had the privilege of meeting with Mel Robbins at her house a couple of months ago and he came and there was this big dog and she's like, do you want me to take the dog out? And I said, no, I said, I said to Diego, you can sit on my lap and we're going to be here. You don't have to touch the dog, but you can't run out either. Right. So finding that sweet spot that he can sort of tolerate it and it's going towards it. Because I think if you avoid it completely, we can't do either. And the last thing I'll say about this is, is kids do know, right? A 10-year-old probably knows. And so if you have a 10-year-old that tends to be more in the anxious spectrum, finding micro ways to do exposure. So maybe you can't go two weeks for camp, but could you go for one night to this camp here? You know, if school has, I sleep at school at night, can you do that? Can you sleep over at a friend's house more often? Finding the proxies to get that exposure to I'm her anxiety might be helpful. Can you mute if somebody's just joined us? What happened? Oh, you're tired. Carolyn will mute that person. Got it. Sorry, I was listening to you because we were in the conversation, so I lost track of the chat. Anyways, yes, thank you, Dr. Luana. That makes sense. It's just like baby steps and keeping track of of what she's how she's experiencing it. That's really helpful. Thank you. Pleasure. I have a build on that because I think the the idea of the comfortably uncomfortable with kids is, is really relevant. Um, sometimes there's like an emotional override, or at least I've experienced that with my teenager. And, um, and so something that I perceive as it shouldn't be uncomfortable, her perception made her very uncomfortable. And then she went to an 11 on the anxious spectrum and, um, and then was in that freeze mode. Um, how do you dial it back after it's happened? Do you know what I mean? Or you, or do you not, you just like let the emotions play out and then you start again. Like, how do you, cause I want to know how to recover from that. 
um, because we make mistakes as parents. I think we're not perfect. Um, and I, we don't want to do lasting damage, but sometimes <laughs> we've done some, right? For sure. I mean, parenting is like, we do the best we can with the variables we have in that moment. And sometimes we hit a home run and sometimes we don't. And that's for all of us, right? So the question really, I think, Amanda, is once you got to that freeze, then you have to dial it back, right? And so, and, and without knowing the scenario is challenging, but again, I go back to the same thing I said to Carolyn, finding proxies to feel that discomfort, right? How old is your teenager? She's 13. And I'm, and I'm, I'm actually remembering an example of when she was 10. Um, and we went on a hike and she just got so worked up in her head about how hard the hike would be that she, mm -hmm. um, became overwrought and the hike ended up not being hard, but she couldn't even be on the hike, you know, like she was on the hike, but just like hyperventilating crying, but it wasn't a hike. It was really a walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's this like whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there was probably, you know, we're here talking about menopause too. I think there were some hormones, you know, she was, you know, about to hit puberty and that was something real. Um, and maybe irrational, um, but we but, hike. Yeah, I mean, so so this is the interesting thing for your daughter now. She's stuck on what's called anticipatory anxiety, which is the anxiety before an event and the prediction that it's going to be bad, right? And so this is you don't die back in the hike. This is the kind of stuff that I would have worked on the reframe. How do we know it's hard? How do we know it's going to be so hard that you can't handle it? What does it make it so hard that what is the decision to turn around? So if it's really hard, when do we decide to turn around? Like how much of the hike do you think you can actually handle? And so I would like literally have a lot of a conversation to bring down the anticipatory anxiety because most of the time, Anticipatory anxiety builds such physiology that then to your point, she's going to go, but then she's going to be white knuckling and white knuckling is not exposure therapy for anybody. It's just white knuckling and only teaches you to be more afraid. And so mm -hmm. now, now it's really, if there are scenarios that she has the same predictions, I would have conversations before use this sort of balanced approach, Socratic questioning, asking questions to get her to understand that likely her prediction is not, you know, what is going to happen. And even if it is, she can handle it. And this is how she's going to handle it. That's great. That's so great. Um, Jade has a question. She says, I'm agoraphobic levels of social anxiety. Do you still suggest exposure or opposite reaction in that case? Absolutely exposure. So uh, for any kind of um, social fears, exposure therapy is the only really evidence-based kind of therapy. Now, this is a trick. If you're in the spectrum that is creating such a response, even being here is an exposure, right? So the first thing is let's commend Jade for being here because I know it's hiding behind the camera and all of that. But the fact is you are already. And, you know, there are great group therapy um, for social anxiety. They're usually 12 weeks long um, for exposure-based. And they will have you really out of your comfort zone. But I've seen people who had social phobia for their whole life turn around just with exposure. So I, I, in fact, I don't think I'd be here had my grandmother not done that for me. Wow. We see you, Jade. Thank you for coming. Thank you for asking that question. I think that's such a great acknowledgement. Um, Jenny has a question. She says, what exactly is anxiety? Is it physiological or is it psychological? I mean, because it feels like both, obviously. <laughs> and, and there's two ways to treat her, like CBT and movement and exercises are two ways to apply the, both the physical and the cognitive, right? So. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, 
I like to define anxiety on the components of anxiety because for every person, what they call anxiety and how it shows up is different. And the components are the three arms of the thoughts, emotions, and behavior cycle. For some people, anxiety is really about their thinking. They catastrophize, they predict the worst, the what if scenario. And, and the prediction is something is going to happen. It's going to be bad. I can't handle it. Right. And then for some people, anxiety comes up as just physiology. Right. This is the, the spill over from fight, flight, or freeze. So heart pounding, sweaty, dizziness, difficulty breathing, hot and cold flashes, um, muscle tension. And the physiology of anxiety is interesting because biologically it had a function, right? So for example, when people are anxious, often they say, okay, I, I felt dizzy or the room was spinning. Why is it that you had that? Well, because when you start to feel that fight, flight, or freeze, the blood rushes from your brain to extremities. You have a lot more blood going through your heart. Your heart starts to pound. And so that you can tense up to run, right? That's why we get dizzy. And so for some of us, it's just the physiology. And for some of us is, in the case of social anxiety, is mostly this too, is the avoidance. I have a prediction and I'm just going to avoid. I'm not going to go in any social scenarios. And so, and they pinpoint, right? So if you say to yourself, um, if, this just happened. I was working with somebody a couple of years ago. And right before the meeting with her, I had a conversation with a celebrity about something. And like, I, so I met, I was about to go into this conversation with a celebrity and my heart was really pounding. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited about this. This is going to be so cool. That was my interpretation of my heart pounding. An hour later, I met with this person and she had called me because her heart was pounding and she was certain that heart pounding meant she was going to have a heart attack, right? And so that the interpretation for her, every time her heart pounds, she says, I'm going to have a heart attack, they have heart pound more. For me, I was like, well, I'm excited. And then it stopped. Like I met with a celebrity, we had the great conversation, it was fantastic. And I didn't pay attention to my heart again. And so I share this to answer a long-witted way to say, Anxiety has components, and for each one of us, we might get stuck in a different place. Does that help, Jenny? That's great. Thank you. I have a question. I think, you know, there's certain parts of our identity that at least I've become more aware of over time. And I've and I I think I'm a pleaser. You know, I'm a people pleaser. I want people to like me. And I think a lot of my anxiety comes from how does this person think about me or you know, what, what is my, and I know we have some people pleasers on the, on the call. Like, what is that? What is that? You know, like, it, cause it's not a projection of how it's going to go. Cause it, it's, it's not a, a make or break thing necessarily. It's like somebody's perception of me, but why does it, why do I make it mean so much about who I am? And I, my sense is that it comes back to sort of my not enough and um something there, but yeah, what is that and how can we reframe those instincts? Because because it does cause anxiety, but it's not, it's it it feels silly compared to you know um some of these other things. Yeah. So a, th a few things. Um the way you describe this is really what we call mind reading, right? That you're about to have an interaction with somebody and you're reading their brain about what their perception of you is. And most of the time when we engage in mind reading, which is a form of cognitive distortion, we're not doing it to say, oh, that person thinks I'm awesome, right? It's an interpretation that they somehow got a value in a certain way. And so at the, the surface level, 
what we're talking about is sort of cognitive distortion. So, you know, I think about them as brain farts, our brain just going somewhere that makes no sense. Um, and so mind reading, catastrophizing, black and white thinking are types of cognitive distortions. Now, at a deeper level than you said, this may be about your own belief about not being enough. Is that what you said, Amanda? Mm -hmm. So that's what's called a core belief. A core belief are the lenses by which all of us see the world that comes from early on in our childhood. And it's almost like you've been wearing those lenses for so long that your brain doesn't challenge that belief. So it may be a belief that no longer makes sense, right? For me, it's I'm not enough. And so, you know, and a couple of years ago, I got a paper accepted, an academic paper accepted. My thought, my brain went like this. Oh, you only got accepted because the co-authors are smart. I'm not smart. Now, I'm associate professor at Harvard. At face value, I have to have some level of being smart, but my brain wanted to maintain that belief. And so first thing to change this is understand what is my core belief and understand that your brain is filtering information to actually maintain that belief. So, you know, if you're about to interact with somebody and you start to wonder about it, I'd pause and be like, okay, what do I know about myself that makes me good enough as it is? Right. And really work on your sense of self so that the brain doesn't predict something that's an old belief that's no longer functional. Does that help a little bit? It does. I, it does. And, you know, I, I sort of think all human beings have this element of not feeling good enough in some category, but what's the people pleasing part of it? Cause that, that I think is the part that I'm just starting to understand is diabolical, you know, cause it's in, cause if I, if I'm not responsible for how anybody else feels, but I'm actually creating this responsibility, like, mm -hmm. like why, why do I think I'm responsible for how anybody feels or that it's important how they think of me, you know, like, what is that? Cause I think, um, and, and I think, you know, I don't want to like paint a picture, but there are a lot of women who have this people pleasing predilection. And I'm, and I just wonder where it comes from. Yeah, very likely. And, you know, without diving very deep with you, um, very likely is from our need to belong. I, as a, as a human being, not just as women, but like as a human being, we have a need to belong. And if anything threatens that sense of belonging, then people get really anxious. And for you, maybe that the, the way you manage that anxiety about belonging with somebody is by pleasing them and trying to sort of overcompensate instead of showing up fully and letting discomfort exist. And knowing I belong. We got to belong with ourselves first though, right? And so that's oh, the challenge. Yeah. For sure. Any more questions before we um, sail off into the sunset and on this Friday? So I saw one here. I'm glad to answer. Somebody asked if I was talking about CBD or DBT or CBT. Um, I was talking about cognitive behavior therapy. And the cognitive behavior therapy, there's different types um, of focus. So dialectical behavior therapy, which is DBT, is the one that talks a lot more about opposite action versus exposure therapy. We'll talk. It's a type of CBT that falls under behavioral therapy versus acceptance and commitment therapy, which focus more on values and committed action. They all focus on thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So, so I think about them as CBT as the umbrella, and then we slice and dice them in different scales. So if you were to prescribe, you know, one thing for this audience, what do you think could, if we were to each take on one practice on board, and I know, I know we've talked a, a, about a lot of things and so many tools in the toolkit, but if you could wish for one thing, um, what would be the tip of the spear? If you're stuck on thinking, work on shift, widen your perspective. 
if you're stuck on avoidance, just a, literally behavior avoidance, focus on approach, not avoid, so opposite action. And if you feel like overall your life is not functioning, then align, align actions with values so that you can start to get yourself unstuck. It's beautiful. It's so clear and so powerful. No wonder you're a best-selling author and associate professor at Harvard. To us, you are very smart and you know the lifelong practice is for you to believe um, what we believe about you, right? And for our, the same for all of us. Thank you. It's been great to be here with everybody. Thank you everybody for spending time with me on, on a Friday afternoon. Oh my gosh, thanks for being here. This has been so illuminating. Um, and I think we're going to do a values workshop in the future. So thanks for that nudge. We um, absolutely want to keep aligning our values to our actions. Thank you for the, for the nudge, Luana. Pleasure. Take care. See you soon. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.